Well, the text of God's word has been read. Thank you. The text has been read. It is now my place to explain what needs explaining and apply what needs to be applied to this body of believers. So we're taking a big chunk this morning of God's revelation in the book of Revelation. If you're new with us, we are making our way through this apocalyptic writing of the Apostle John, and we come this morning to chapters 15 and 16. And I thought it would be best today, instead of trying to unpack verse by verse and going into all the details of of this passage, I thought it would be best to explain what needs explaining and then do some uh, theological reflection with you on this uh, topic. So the title this morning is Theological Reflections on... The wrath of God. Revelation 15 and 16 form a package for us. Revelation 15 is really a prelude to chapter 16 and the six bowls of wrath. The prelude, of course, as you saw there, includes worship of those who apparently have been martyred. They're victorious now in heaven. And so before we even get to the bowls of wrath, as we come to the last group of seven, right? We had the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, and now the seven bowl judgments. As as the climax is, as we're moving toward that climax in the book of Revelation, the labor pains are becoming more frequent and more intense and lasting longer. Here in chapter 15, God is being praised and worshipped for the very wrath that he is pouring out and will continue to pour out detailed for us in 16. And so these two chapters are a unit, they are a package deal, and they have a keynote, they have a driving theme behind them, and it's simply this, the finishing of the tribulation wrath of God. The finishing of the tribulation wrath of God. And I want to just show you that theme. It's in chapter 15, verse 1. Because in them, the wrath of God is finished. Is finished. We see it again in verse 8. Until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And then again in chapter 16, verse 17. The angel poured out his bowl upon the air. The loud voice came out of the temple, from the throne, saying, It is done. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been really looking forward in the book of Revelation to when it is done. When it is finished. It's a little misleading in that 17 and 18 is still more judgment. It's a more particular focus on the fall of Babylon to come. But we are getting there to the end of these uh, bowls of God's Wrath. And so that's the keynote. The catastrophic climax. The season finale. A season of God's wrath that has never been seen and never will be seen again. Now, to be sure, you'll notice the word finished, done. This, this is the same word that Jesus used from the cross. When he said it is finished or it is done, and so it raises a question for us, doesn't it? Here's the answer. God's wrath was finished at the cross for all who would ever believe. But for those who refuse, it is a far different story indeed. And so here we are in a future time period that has not yet happened, and we're seeing this future wrath for those who would not believe. And then it would be finished. 
There's some crucial background you need to understand these two chapters. There were hints of it in the word plague or plagues, which was used several times. Seven or eight times in these two chapters that word was used. Here is the crucial Old Testament background. There is a strong connection here to the ten plagues in Egypt. A very strong connection and deliberate one. The first bowl judgment of sores connects to the sixth plague of boils on men and beasts. The second and third bowl of water turning to blood, both salt and fresh, lines up with the first plague of the Nile being turned to blood, where the fish die and the Nile became foul. The fifth bowl of the kingdom of the beast being plunged into darkness lines up with the ninth plague of three days of darkness that fell upon Egypt. The text says in Exodus, a darkness that could be felt. The sixth bowl that prepares for Armageddon, it involves three unclean spirits who are compared to frogs. Frogs were the second plague. The seventh bowl connects to the seventh plague of hell. And in Exodus it says, fire running down to the earth. Probably a description of lightning, unless it was something more unusual or supernatural. But the seventh bowl judgment of lightning and thunder and hell and this great earthquake lines up with the seventh plague. The only difference is this unprecedented earthquake. Now, if you've been with us in Revelation... When you read that this earthquake was greater than any earthquake mankind has ever experienced, you ought to be kind of blown away by that because we've seen some pretty amazing earthquakes already in the book of Revelation, in the seal judgments, and in the trumpet judgments. But here is, here is the earthquake to end all earthquakes. Here is an earthquake that is going to change the geography and change the shape and face of the whole planet. Mountains leveled. Islands Moved out of their place. And so let me say this as we begin. As far-fetched as these judgments seem to us in our nice peaceful day and age in in the 21st century, the nice nice peace life where we read these judgments of these brothers and they seem far-fetched and unbelievable, you need to understand that something similar to this has already happened in human history on a smaller, more local scale. It was the ten plagues that God unleashed on the nation of Egypt. Now, there's a more important connection to that, and it's this. It's a connection to the Exodus itself. As the ten plagues in that ancient time was used to rescue God's people, Israelites, and to eventually establish Israel as a nation in their promised land, the ten plagues were used to accomplish that, including the Red Sea crossing, so will be the bold judgments to come. There is a strong connection here as God will rescue and deliver and prepare and usher in the kingdom of Israel through the bold judgments. And the, the thing that changes is instead of a Red Sea crossing, you have the return of Christ. Bringing all of this about. And so there is a very deliberate connection made by John to the plagues and the deliverance of the nation of Israel because what we're reading about will be the trigger that delivers a future Israel. What of this Song of Moses? Did you see that in verse 3 of chapter 15? Song of Moses and Song of the Lamb. Song of Moses here is a reference to Exodus 
15. And, and it was the song of Moses there after the Red Sea crossing there in Exodus 15. And here in Revelation, it is now sung, I believe, by a believing, martyred Jewish remnant. A remnant who in this situation are in heaven, and they've had their own Red Sea experience. They've been martyred out of the earth. They're now victorious over the beast and over his the number of his name, verse 2. And they're singing the song of Moses. Here's the beginning of the song of Moses from Exodus 15. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And so they take up the song of Moses. As we think ahead to what's coming in a millennial kingdom populated by Jewish people, I think there's also a place to say this. Again, tying back to the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. In the end, there will be a living group of Jews, the Jewish remnant, and they will once again pass safely through judgment so that they can come into their promised land, so that they can Embrace and experiences the promises of God made to them. And so that song of Moses back in Exodus 15 was prophetic. It ends like this. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. So then what is the song of the Lamb? Well, the Lamb is the greater Moses. From shadow to substance. Because they understand that their deliverance from the wrath of God and their rescue is ultimately based on the work of the Lamb. Moses pointed to Him. Moses was the law giver. The Lamb was the law keeper. Moses could only point to Him in the sacrificial system. The Lamb was the sacrifice. And so it is not only the song of Moses, it is the song of the Lamb, the deliverer, the rescuer of God's people, the nation of Israel. And He will come in just the nick of time, and He will save those people from annihilation and extermination in the Holy Land, and He will usher them into their millennial kingdom. And they will populate that kingdom as physical human beings where they will serve the Lamb of God and and exist under His reign. Again, we're just explaining what needs to be explained. Not all of it does. It's all pretty apparent if you understand a future literal interpretation as we do here. So let me just touch on a couple of other things. The war, chapter 16, verse 14, just calls it the war. And they're gathered in a place in Hebrew called Har-Mageddon, the valley of Megiddo is the gathering spot for this war. It's not the location of the war. It's the staging area of the war. If you've ever been to Israel, I'm sure you went to Mount Carmel and you were able to see Harmageddon. You've been able to see this massive valley expanse that could hold literally hundreds of thousands, even millions of people. It is so massive. And this will be the gathering spot for this war, this final war. A war we refer to as Armageddon. It's very interesting. Armageddon is where the nations of the world, the rebels against God and the haters of Israel, it's where they think they are gathering to overwhelm Israel and to finally rid the world of the Jewish problem, but actually they're gathered by God for their own destruction. 
at the paws and the claws of the lion from the tribe of Judah. What they think is going to be the success of the world and the greatest blessing on the world is actually a death trap that God himself has set. Because God sent the judgment to dry up the Euphrates River so that these masses of people could funnel into Palestine. And if you go and look at a world map and you back up from and go north and back up from the Euphrates River and just kind of open up, what do you find? You find Russia and India and China and billions of people (laughs) that are going to accumulate, some of them anyway, and be this great force that is gathered in the place called Armageddon. So then what is verse 15 doing here in chapter 16? Hopefully your Bible has it in parentheses because it is a parenthetical. Right in the midst of the discussion about the sixth angel and the sixth bowl comes this promise from Christ himself. As we've seen already throughout the book of Revelation. He just interjects this for the tribulation saint, for the believer who's going to be living during these times of all hell breaking loose on earth. And he just comes with this word of encouragement. I'm coming like a thief. My coming is going to be a surprise. Even with this cataclysmic chaos and judgments that are going on in the sun, the moon, the stars, the world, the sea, everything is in upheaval. He's still going to be a surprise when he shows up to an unbelieving world. I come like a thief. I come unannounced. I come unexpected. I'm going to burst onto the world scene and nobody's going to be ready for it. But you believer, blessed is the one who stays awake. Blessed is the one who keeps his clothes on, covered in deeds of righteousness, Covered in deeds of good deeds for the Lord. Staying awake, staying alert, staying sober. Don't fall asleep so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. This is a word of encouragement to tribulation saints who will have this book and have this word when it happens. And basically Jesus is saying, persevere in the faith and persevere in good deeds. Even though all of the world is falling apart and turning mad. Don't give up. In other words, trials and persecution is never an excuse to stop being a Christian and to stop living like a Christian. I think of the German and Jewish Christians in those concentration camps during and before World War II. And and how, okay, yeah, life is horrible. Life is terrible. You're being persecuted. You're being starved to death. You're being beaten and, and ridiculed. But none of that was an excuse to stop being a Christian. And many of them certainly did not stop being a Christian, stop living like a Christian. Certainly Diedrich Bonhoeffer is the one that we all know about and how he befriended guards and befriended fellow prisoners and and understood that suffering was part of the Christian life and he embraced it and he lived for Christ in the worst of circumstances. And so this is really what verse 15 is saying. In the worst of circumstances, keep living for Christ. In the worst of circumstances, understand that you need to do good deeds to even those who hate you and persecute you. Keep your clothes on. Don't shed your life of blessing others. The great city of verse 19 is Jerusalem. The cities of the nations, well, they're the cities of the nations. New York City, L.A., Chicago, Houston, Tokyo, Mexico City, 
And on and on we could go with the great cities of the nations that will be leveled. Isn't it interesting that the very language here speaks of skyscrapers coming down to the ground? I mean, cities have not always had skyscrapers. But now it says the great city was split in three parts and the cities of the nations fell. So that's what needed to be explained. Now with the reading and the explaining behind us, I want to share with you four theological reflections this morning on the wrath of God and with some applications for each of us. And then we're going to sing our hearts out. Number one, God's wrath vindicates God. God's wrath vindicates, which means protects, honors, defends God. To say this point another way, the wrath of God flows from the character of God. Many attributes of God have been highlighted in chapter 15. Great, almighty, righteous, true, king, Glorious, holy, powerful, and wrathful. The wrath of God is always seen in the Bible as coming from the very heart of God, from the very character of God, from the very person of God, because it vindicates God. Every sin must be punished because God's wrath is all about protecting God's character, and every sin is against God's character. And so God takes it upon himself to zealously, infinitely, and eternally protect his own holy character. If we just think of some of these attributes that are highlighted here in chapter 15, we can see how this works. Every sin rebels against his righteous standard. Every sin that is ever committed calls the true God a liar. Every sin trades the beauty of his holiness for the muck of this world. Every sin rejects his being eternal by seeking pleasure in the here and now. Every sin we commit, every sin committed by every moral creature God has ever made, moves that creature toward idolatry and away from God's satisfying glory. Every sin does that. And every sin mocks God's power to judge. God is righteous, true, holy, eternal, glorious, and powerful. Every sin is against those attributes, and so God zealously vindicates himself. Imagine yourself as a 25-year-old newly married man, and you're out on a date with your wife, and a stranger walks up to you before you can even know what is happening. He rips the blouse off of your wife, spits in her face, slaps her, and calls her a derogatory name. What is going to be your response? You're going to be wrathful. <laughs> You're going to defend her honor. 
you're going to have an instinct of fighting back. You see, nothing is more opposed to God than sin. God takes sin personally. He's not just a stop sign. He's the loving governor who put up the stop sign so that you don't get T-boned by a dump truck. He's not inanimate. He's not unfeeling. He's not unmoved by the sin of His creatures. He is grieved. He feels it. He understands it. He knows it. It moves Him to a response. He takes it personal. Certainly David understood this when he violated God's righteous standard. David said, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. There it is. David is saying, God, ultimately my sin is against you, so you are vindicated when you judge me. Let me put it to you this way. Because I'm, I'm living my life so that one day Toby will quote me. That's, that's, my, that's my goal. Great quote this morning. I love that. Don't want to be on the wrong end of God's holiness. That's great. Let me put it to you this way. If you were as holy as God, you would be as wrathful as God. But we're not. And that's why God says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's why God says to us, Do not take vengeance in your own hands. Because we're not as holy as God is. Here's your application. We defend and protect God's honor best when we hate our sin the most. You want to defend the honor of God? You want to glorify God? You want to join God in vindicating God? Then hate your sin. That's the way you do it. And that does it best. Nothing comes close to that. It's not hating the sin of the world. It's not hating the sin of the unbeliever. It's hating my own sin that defends the honor of God in my life. So our first theological reflection from these two chapters is God's wrath vindicates God. That's the purpose. The primary purpose that it serves. Number two, God's wrath is deserved. God's wrath is deserved. We see in verse 2 of chapter 16, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore, a boil likely, on the people. What people? Which people? Who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image? By their own volition, of their own free choice, they received the mark of the beast, which was a mark on their forehand or their forehead. It was a mark saying, I belong to the beast. I serve the beast. I love the beast. I believe in the beast. I worship the beast. The beast is my God. The beast is my king. I belong to him and I want to show the world that I belong to him. The mark was their baptism, if you will. It was their testimony, if you will. It will be. And those who worshipped his image. And we've seen this already. The, the false prophet, the, the third member of the unholy trinity, sets up a, an image of the beast, likely a statue. The image 
takes on lifelike characteristics and is able to speak. And people come when they can't bow down to Antichrist, they come and bow down to his image. And so this, again, is another action of man, uncoerced, unforced. They freely choose to do this. Well, the first bowl deals with that whole segment of the population. And these folks begin to have these sores. In other words, God's wrath is is deserved. Um, we see this again in 4 through 7 especially. And, and these two work together, don't they? The vindication of God and, and wrath being deserved certainly work hand in glove. But you see this in 4 through 7. This third angel turns all of the water into blood. And then, this is an interesting phrase, the angel of the waters. Did you catch that? Apparently there's an angel that guards water. He's he's assigned to water. Water is life. And, and so that angel says, as, as he sees all water, 100% now, not a third, not two-thirds, 100%. All the oceans, all the springs, all the rivers, all of it, blood, foul, stinking, fish die. Oh, it's just so it's so overwhelming to think about all the fish that would just be floating and court and rotting and and this angel seeing what he is designed to protect look what he does verse 5 righteous are you o holy one because you judge these things they poured out the blood of saints and prophets you've given them blood to drink they deserve it they deserve it and the altar, this is interesting, the altar says, is this one of the four living creatures? Is this the altar itself? I don't know. The altar says, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Lest you think God is going too far, true and righteous are your judgments, God. He will be vindicated. Well, God's wrath is certainly deserved by moral creatures who rebel against Him. What this reminds us of, friends is there are no little sins. There are no minor infractions against the character of God. There are no excusable sins, justifiable sins, sins that can be rationalized or minimized or sins that are not that big a deal. Sins are not an oops. Sins are not Mistakes. You know, we're in a culture that's redefining sin every day. Sin in our culture is redefined as sickness. Sin is redefined as mistakes. Sin is being redefined as poor choices. That was poor judgment. In fact, we will constantly be hearing in the public arena someone who will commit a sin and then have to publicly confess that. And here's what we will hear. I regret the poor judgment that I exercised. That's not who I am. That's not me. I want to today apologize to my teammates, to the ownership, to the fans. That's not who I am. I have committed myself to a treatment program. This is what we're going to hear, right? Whether it's entertainers, politicians, or athletes, this is what we're going to hear. Because sin is redefined as sickness. Sin is redefined as poor judgment. No, none of that is accurate. None of that is what we ought to be hearing. Sin is willful rebellion against the law and person of God.
period. Sin is willful rebellion against the law and person of God. And the Bible says if you break the law of God in any one point, you're guilty of how much of it? All of it, James 2. You break it in one point, you're guilty of all of it because it all came from God and it is all an expression of His character. Beloved, never underestimate the sinfulness of even one sin. One sin is enough to condemn us to an eternity in hell. One sin is all it takes for God to pronounce us as guilty. What this chapter has said to me really again and again is the sinfulness of sin. I mean, our human compassion, our human mercy wants to read this and we do want to, we have this feeling inside where we say, wow, this seems like too much. Why is God so furious? Why is he so angry? And that only happens because you and I underestimate the sinfulness of sin. The guilt worthiness of Rebelling against a good creator. So I want you to never forget, I want all of us to never forget, we deserve God's wrath as much as anyone. When we think about God's wrath being deserved, we need to say to ourselves, we deserve it as much as anyone. Now, do we deserve as much wrath as anyone? No, because God has degrees of wrath and degrees of judgment. But do we deserve God's wrath as much as anyone? Yes. Yes. Let us all admit then, I deserve God's wrath for my sin. And again, one and two combined. God is vindicated because man gets what man deserves. Let me put it to you this way. It's only perfect justice. And every sin ever created in God's universe will get perfect justice. Not a single one will be missed. There are no exceptions to this. Every sin is perfectly judged in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross or through the wrath of God that goes on forever. He has a book. He records them all and he deals with every one of them. Number three. Number three. I almost didn't do this this point. I don't want to do this point, uh, but it's all over these two chapters. Um, God's wrath includes indescribable physical pain. We see this in chapter 16, verse 2, and 8 through 11, and then at the end in verse 21. God's wrath includes indescribable physical pain. So I wanted to think through this. Our body parts, the members of our body, are instruments. They're either tools and instruments of sin, or they're instruments of what? Righteousness. Romans 6. Our body parts, as rebellious, unsaved people, are only and exclusively then instruments and tools of sin. And so the body parts that carry out the sin must be punished along with the sinner. It's all part of perfect justice. Let me illustrate. It is our brain that produces idols left and right. So our brain must be punished. Our tongue cuts and kills people with our words. And our tongue makes great boasts. So our tongue must be punished. Our eyes lust for more and better. So our eyes must be punished. Our ears 
dine on tasty gossip and false teaching, so our ears must be punished. Our hands pull triggers and stab and slap and steal and grope, so our hands must be punished. Our feet carry us to do evil, so our feet must be punished. Our sexual organs, of course, defile the whole person. They must be punished. It's not unlike when a bull gores a man or a dog kills a human being. What must happen to that animal? They must die. An animal without a moral will. An animal that's acting instinctively. But we still as human beings say an animal kills a person, the animal dies. The animal must pay. We even have that in the form of capital punishment for human beings. Think of it this way. The body and the soul are a unit. They go together. And so the body and the soul are both punished. And this chapter makes a great point of that. A great point of that. So I was thinking about you and me who are in Christ here this morning. It took me to Christ as I thought about God's wrath, including indescribable physical pain. Where did my mind go? But to the cross where there was indescribable physical pain. I want you to remember this morning that Jesus suffered in your place from head to toe. Jesus suffered from head to toe. Jesus was lacerated on his back. He had a crown of thorns hammered into his head. He had nails driven through his wrist and through his legs. His physical suffering was immense. He took our place. Every bit of it took our place. His suffering was comprehensive, exhaustive, exhausting, and infinite. It was suffering of mind, suffering of body, suffering of soul, suffering of spirit. He was cut off from God. He was cut off from man. He received no aid, no help, no pity, no mercy. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. The Lord Jesus suffered in your place, head to toe. This is an amazing, indescribable degree of suffering as He took our place. As we read chapters like this, as we meditate on chapters like this, you and I must stop and say, praise God for the grace that has been unleashed on my life to spare me from this. Praise God for the saving grace of Jesus standing in my stead. Now, if you've been saved by the grace of God and by the person of Jesus hanging on a cruel cross, doesn't that call you to dedicate your body parts to serve Him? The same body parts that will be judged and punished forever of the unbeliever. No, you can be different. You can give Him your hands. You can give Him your eyes. You can give Him your brain. You can give Him your tongue. You can give Him your ears and your feet. You can consecrate your entire body to the service of God instead of the service of sin. Black and white, there's those two choices. There are no other choices. Every day, my body's going to either serve God or sin. It's going to serve the flesh or it's going to serve the Spirit. I plead with you this morning, will you yield to the Spirit instead of the flesh? We're reminded, aren't we, that we were bought with a price? Therefore, what? Glorify God in your body. So we ought to wake up every day and say, God, here's my heart. Here's my body. Here's my thoughts. I want to be consecrated to you. Bought with a price. Finally, number four. We've seen that God's wrath vindicates God. God's wrath is deserved by sinners. God's wrath will involve physical pain for human beings. So are you ready for 
Some really good news. Number four, God's wrath can be avoided. God's wrath can be avoided. That's the message of verse 9 and 11 and 21. When it tells us that they did not repent so as to give him glory and they blasphemed God and they did not repent and they blasphemed God because the hell was extreme. The implication is they should have repented. They should have repented and repentance would have brought them to a place of avoiding this wrath. Let me ask you this morning, how many opportunities must God give you before your heart is like Pharaoh and is hardened beyond repair? How many opportunities must God give you before it's too late? The connection to Egypt and the plagues is important because there was this man there in Egypt named Pharaoh and he got all of these signs and he got all of these warnings and he got all of these messages day after day, week after week. They came before him. They said, this is going to happen if you do not let God's people go. And he refused and he refused and he refused to repent. And it all happened just as promised. He hardened his heart, became like a stone. What this tells us is this, beloved, the great day of God is coming, but it's not here yet. What's here now is the great day of grace, the great day of salvation, the great day when you're sitting in church in no physical pain or at least not so much pain that you can't sit here and listen. And God's wrath can be avoided. It's very interesting. I don't think God's primary purpose here in these chapters is to bring about repentance. Because I think his primary purpose is to vindicate his own character of holiness. But it's very interesting, isn't it? Because in the book of Romans, in chapter 2, the Bible says, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. You cannot achieve repentance. You cannot achieve salvation. You only receive it. It's a pure and total gift, a free gift. You don't work for it. You don't deserve it. You can only receive it by the grace of God. You see, the implication of the refrain of chapter 16 is that sinners should repent. And if you're in that category this morning, you should repent. You should turn. You should change your mind about your sin and about God. You should do a 180. You should start a new way of life. You really should. You should exercise your will and you should begin to move in that direction by the grace of God. Let me ask you a question. Why would you love sin instead of the Savior? Why would you serve Satan instead of Jesus? The outcome of serving sin and self and Satan is God's wrath. That's the only possible outcome. To say it another way, every day you refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Every day you refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Let's just be blunt. Sin cannot end well. Alright? It can't make you happy. It can't bring you peace. It can't give you purpose. It can't end well. It just can't. And the most foolish thing a person can do is to continue in a life of sin. When they know that it's sin and they know the Savior stands there ready to forgive and ready to set them free. Ready to give them eternal life. Ready to give them purpose and joy and peace that sin cannot give you. 
The good news this morning is every time we confess our sins and every time we repent as believers, you know what we're doing? We are celebrating that Jesus died for our sins. We are celebrating that Jesus is worth it. Repentance is not just for unbelievers. Repentance is for Christians. You and I need to repent all the time as Christians because God makes us aware of another sin in our life. And listen to me, when you repent of your sins, you are saying to Jesus, you are worth it. You are better than sin. You are more satisfying. You are more glorious. You are more beautiful. That's what repentance says. In other words, repentance celebrates the gospel like nothing else does. That's how we celebrate the good news as believers.